All right, if you would, let's go to Psalm 71 once again this morning. Psalm 71. And we'll be looking this morning, and we'll go ahead and read our text. Psalm 71, we'll begin in verse 16, and we're going to read down through verse 24. And we're going to deal this morning with the subject of the strength of the Lord God. The strength of the Lord God. Beginning there in verse 16. I will go in the strength of the Lord God. I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is to come. Thy righteousness also, O God, is very high. Who hast done great things, O God, who is like unto thee? Thou which hast showed me great and sore troubles, shalt quicken me again, and shalt bring me up again from the depths of the earth. Thou shalt increase my greatness, and comfort me on every side. I will also praise thee with the psaltery, even thy truth, O my God. Unto thee will I sing with the harp, O thou Holy One of Israel. My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing unto thee, and my soul which thou hast redeemed. My tongue also shall talk of thy righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought unto shame that seek my hurt. You can see how easy it is to come with the theme of this particular text by the first verse that we read, that David makes this vow, he makes this declaration, if you will, that I will go in the strength of the Lord God. In his continual pursuit of this subject, David continues to think upon how his confidence can be unwavering, as we've learned through every season of life. His confidence in the Lord can be unwavering in every circumstance and every situation in life. And it leads him to come to a conclusion of really proclaiming back to God what he knows the end is and how he knows that in all these things, it is the strength of God, the strength of the Lord God, that must be mighty in him for him to be able to make the the proclamations of the things in which he does. He is pleased here to utter these things. Uh, These are not forced words. David's not having to be forced to say, hey, say something good about the Lord. Uh, He's not having to be uh, coaxed into saying these things. These are the natural uh, response to a person who understands who God is and understands what God has done. And he very clearly understands that since the time that he knew the Lord and since the time when he called upon God, every dealing that God had dealt with David about, God has always been good. God has always been right. God has always been just. And David can't help here but make mention of it. He can't help but speak. He cannot help but declare the wonderful works in which God has done. And he makes a specific statement there. He says he's going to go in the strength of the Lord God. And he said, I will make mention of thy righteousness, even of thine only. He makes this declaration that it is only the righteousness of Christ. It's only the righteousness of God that's going to matter. And that is the marvelous light that has been revealed to him, that there is no other righteousness. There is no other other source of hope. And he says that this will be my only subject. 
Now, we all have many, many things on our mind today. And if you're anything like mine, my, my mind, and I would not invite you there for a moment uh, because of the amount of things that are going on there, uh, the amount of subjects, the amount of things, the agenda that's on my mind and with things I have to do tomorrow and the next day and things I have to take care of even today. David kind of calls us to this, this idea of having one subject on our mind. And we're having one thought on our mind. You know how hard it is even to come to a church gathering and keep your mind just on the subject of God? You realize how easy it is to be carried away with the concerns and the cares of the day and your circumstances and your troubles and your trials. And we come with, I think, a great intention to have, I just want to have the subject of God on my mind today. But yet, it's not hard. Our minds get distracted. Now, again, the church meeting is not the only place our mind should be on God. Now, David's not saying he never thought about anything else. He's not saying he didn't have anything else on his mind. I'm sure even when he's penning this, he's still thinking about Absalom. He's still thinking about Ahithophel. He's still thinking about the struggle and the triumph or the, tr- the struggles and trials that he's in, but he understands that it is the strength of the Lord that's going to carry him. This is his one subject. I will only make mention of your righteousness. Now, he goes back in some way, another review. We've seen this, and as these psalms often come to an end, the psalm writers often give kind of a, uh, uh, they re-establish what they've been talking about. Look at verse 17. He says, O God, thou hast taught me from my youth, and hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. Uh, It was, in fact, uh, God who taught David. It was, in fact, God who taught him not only as a child of God, but as a captain, as a king. Uh, David's kingship was marked by God teaching him. It was God who had sought David. It was, it was God who had taught him to declare these wondrous works. Uh, you think about the works of God that we declare, that the works of God that are on our lips today. It is God that has made those declarations possible. I would declare nothing about God had he not put those wondrous works in front of me and identified me and identified those to me. I would not know the wondrous works of God. I would would struggle and say, what's so wondrous about God's works had God not enlightened me to those realities? But David here speaks of these wondrous works. You know, God's works really are, they're incomprehensible in their fullness. Uh, we see the results of the work of God's hands, but the actual to comprehend the entirety of the fullness of his wondrous works still to us right now are incomprehensible. We don't have the capacity mentally in our humanity to fully grasp all the mysteries of God. Uh, Even as we sung that hymn, come behold the wondrous mystery. There are still things that are mysterious. There are still things we don't fully comprehend. We don't fully have not seen them in in their entirety yet, Uh, but we have been given a glimpse of it. We've been given a glimpse of what this is. And David here, of course, is still speaking uh, about the strength of the Lord God, which is the strength of Jehovah. He established that in the very first verse of this psalm. It is the strength of Jehovah in which was his strength. But make no mistake about it, David wants to emerge or come out of these present trials. He wants to come out of those, but he wants to come out of those being 
preserved through them, and even as he comes out of the trial, he still wants to be declaring the wondrous works of God. That's really what his one mindset is. I want to magnify God even when I emerge from this. Now, how do we know that? Because David starts talking about he knows he's going to emerge from this. He knows that this trial that he's in is going to come to an end. He knows that this struggle is going to one day be over. And folks, that's really where our hope is found. Our hope is found in the reality that the struggle, whatever the struggle is now or whatever the trial is, it is not forever. And if you are a child of God, there is a more glorious day coming. There is an unfolding. There is an unveiling that's coming that is going to reveal these wondrous works of God in a way that we are going to be able to comprehend it. And David yet writes almost as an individual who knows a little bit about what these incomprehensible works are. But he does say, it is you, God, that has taught me from my youth. It is you, God, in which I am going to declare the wondrous works. Now look at verse 18. Now David now fast forwards and again he says, Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not, until I have showed thy strength unto this generation and thy power to everyone that is come. Now David's requesting to be preserved in his old age. Now, I've given you a bit of an outline like I've been doing over the past few weeks. I'm not going to reference it much today as far as pointing it out, but if you want to write those things down, these aren't deep thoughts today. So if we're looking for a deep theology to what my statements are, they're not. These are very practical, direct requests. David is requesting this very simple thing that, God, when I'm old, when I'm gray-headed, preserve me, don't forsake me. I have showed thy strength unto this generation and power, thy power to everyone that has come. David requests to be preserved in his old age that these victories of his life and all of the Psalms that will be finished. You know, there was a day when David wrote his last Psalm. There was a day when David no longer penned another Psalm. Now, I, I venture to say David probably didn't know that that was his last Psalm he was penning. I venture to say David was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit just like he always had done. He didn't know that that day was his last one. So I think it's significant that David talks about uh, being preserved in his old age. And maybe he has in mind that day when he steps into eternity. But this really, this is where it really started to to get to to me, where I started to really see the theology that David really had. You know, theology really is a study of God. Theology is a study of who God is. It's a study of his attributes. The word theology doesn't even show up in our Bible. It's not a word that we see as theology. But yet without theology, the scriptures, in some sense, they will remain locked. We're not going to see all that we need to see out of them. But David is expressing a great theological mind. Now, maybe not a theological mind that we would, someone today would say, now that's, he's right on par with the great theologians of the past or the great theologians of the day. Uh, but David is expressing these great thoughts that show a deepness and the greatness of his mind. He's, he's grasping these things. You know, one of the great struggles, I don't want a personal application, one of the great struggles for uh, a pastor or elders or whatever the case is, is to, to, to direct and lead and to guide what a congregation 
needs to hear, what, what they need to be made aware of, and then at the same time trying to manage what they already know. And yet David seems to grasp some of these deep theological concepts. Some of these theological concepts, we might leave a church setting like this, and we may go home and we may say, I'm not really grasping that. And I've said this many times. I, I don't think the goal is that we walk away from a church gathering with full understanding. I think it's something we go home, we meditate, and we study upon, and we further that thought. Um, I, I certainly hope you don't come here expecting the full explanation and the full understanding so that uh, if that was the price, the ticket you paid to get that, you probably leave here a lot of times very, well, I didn't get what I paid for. Because we're not fully going to comprehend all of these things. And, but David seems to be grasping some of these great thoughts. But I think one of the things David is declaring here about, I've declared, I have showed thy strength unto this generation, thy power to every one. I think David even had an understanding that there was no exhausting of the subjects of God. You know how many theological books have been written and none of them exhaust God? Choose any, any commentary series. It doesn't exhaust God. It doesn't exhaust his works. It doesn't, it doesn't fulfill and complete every aspect of who God is. And does God expect us to? I don't think he expects us to grasp the entirety of who he is because I don't think we can in our humanity fully grasp who God is. But I do think we can have our minds set upon these great subjects. And, you know, think about... Uh, what you think about in a week, those subjects that we think about all week long, how long is the subject of God on our minds? You know, even in the practical life when we're out and about, how often do we look at something and we think about God and we think about his greatness and we think about uh, his, his works to us and what he's done in creation? I think David's really showing us this theological mind that he has. It ought to be the desire and David makes this very practical. I want to show your strength to this generation. That's the practical application. I may not go out into the world and announce a great theological principle or concept, but do you know how I demonstrate and show the strength of God by my praise of God? The greatest theological minds that man says are the greatest theological minds were minds that praise, they were, they were people that praise God openly. It is possible for you to become so theologically academic that you lose sight of the praise of God. You can get so deep into this that you lose sight of the beauties of this. David is speaking in very plain language. He wants the praise of God to be passed down from his generation to future generations. What did he want them to know? He wanted them to know about who he is. They wanted, he wanted him to know the name of God. He wanted people to know the person of God. He wanted people to know the salvation of God. And I think probably at the end of it all, he wanted to know them that there is a name that's above every name. And that's the name of God. And that the end would be that God would be glorified in every way and in everything. He continues, verse 19, Thy righteousness also, O God, is very high. 
Who hath done great things? O God, who is like unto thee? Notice there's an exclamation point there. He's not asking a question. He's making a declaration. He says, O God, who is like you? The name of Christ, the person of Christ. Think about all the, th- all the glorious truths about Jesus Christ we know today. His name, his person, his resurrection, his ascension. As we've been learning in our study through Hebrews, where he is seated today at the right hand of the Father, as, by the way, the perfect high priest ever living to make intercession for his people. God made a way for David and God made a way for you and I. God made a way. That way ought to lead us to respond like David responded with a mind to worship and a mind to reverence. And then don't lose this one and a mind to adore God. Adoration of God is something that should not be neglected. Adoration is different than just, than just worship. It's, it's different. To, to adore, it is to, it's to put in, into a category, and again, I'm going to fail at trying to explain this with God, but it is to adore in a way that nothing or no one else is revered. It's to adore him for his person. It's to adore him for his name. It is to think about these great things that he has done that makes us exclaim like David, Oh God, who is like unto thee? If I were to list all the great names and all the great uh, Christians of every time, past, present, and future, I would find none as great as you. I would find no one that's worthy of my adoration. I would find at the end of it all that even when I tried to exhaust all the great things that David's talking about here, I would still find myself saying, there are so many things, there are so many works. Who is like you? And of course, the answer is, there are none. Now notice verse 20, David is very careful to make sure he understood the providence and the sovereignty of God. We've talked about this. Verse 20, he says, thou hast showed me great and sore troubles. Unless you truly know this, God, it's going to be difficult to adore a God who ordains trouble in your life. Because we think someone that allows or brings trouble does it for our hurt, and yet God does it for our good. He brings the struggle of life into our life to bring out the good and his glory. You know, I often hear people make that mistake, say God's doing that to harm you. God's doing that to hurt you. God doesn't do anything to hurt his children. It's unthinkable that he would do something to hurt his children. Just like it's unthinkable for a father or a mother to intentionally hurt their child. And to, to categorize God as God saying, he's sitting there on a the throne in heaven and he's, he's, he's pointing out his wrath and he's saying, I'm going to do that to hurt that child of mine. Even in discipline, he doesn't do it for hurt. The chastisement is not for our hurt. It's for our betterment. It is a bad earthly parent 
that chastises and disciplines their child with the intent of hurting that child. You've got it all wrong. That's not what you're doing that for. You're doing it because you do love them and you are trying to produce in them what is good by driving out that which is bad and that which is contrary. So David expresses confidence that he knows where these troubles and trials came from. But notice his next statement. But thou shalt quicken me again and shalt bring me up again from the depths of the earth. I sometimes like to put emphasis on words. Look at the word again. Quicken me again. This was not David's first experience with sore trials and troubles. And it wasn't his first time to the journey of the depths I dare say, if you've been a child of God for any amount of time at all, you've been in the depths more than once, and you're going to be in the depths again, and the promises are the same. God will quicken me again and again and again and again. That's the confidence that David had in the strength of God. Literally, David is expressing confidence that God will revive me. The word quicken means to make alive. It's the same word here to bring, to bring that which is dead to life. David is understanding this. Even though David has troubles, even though David has trials, the Lord had taught him and disciplined him according to the good pleasure of his will to restore David. He would be brought up from the depths of the earth again. You know, there was nobody who walked the face of this earth who experienced greater troubles than our Lord. Uh, There is no one who suffered greater suffering than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Yet think about what he was carrying. Think about what the Lord was carrying. He was carrying our sin. He was carrying the burdens of our transgressions. Jesus Christ went to a cross. He was crucified. He was placed in a grave. He did raise on the third day. His resurrection was a quickening. He was brought up again from the depths of the earth. This is kind of the idea that David has in mind. I will be brought up. I will be, if you will, resurrected. Verse 21, thou shalt increase my greatness and comfort me on every side. Spiritually speaking, this was David's case time and time again. My, my greatness would be increased. Your comfort would be on every side. Jesus Christ lived. He died. He rose again. Now he has the power of an endless life. David understands that comfort in this life is not the only comfort he can expect. He knows there is an eternal comfort that is awaiting. You know, it's impossible it's impossible to fully comprehend what eternal comfort is going to be. Because our comfort here is, does have its limitations. Because we experience, for example, when we lose a loved one, that loss is real. Okay, don't everybody let, don't ever let you say, you know, that this, this loss, you'll get over this loss. Can I just tell you, you don't get over the loss. You, you don't. Now you say, that's not very encouraging, Pastor. But are we, being, are we being straight shooters today? You don't get over the loss. What happens is for the believer, 
is the comfort of the Lord replaces the loss. But the loss is still there. But now you feel the comforting hand of God. In every trial, every struggle, every loss, the comforting hand of God is there. Sometimes we are, we can be poor comforters because we don't know what to say. And we don't know how to provide perfect comfort. You know, in our innocence, sometimes, and again, I'm not picking on anybody in particular if you've done this, because I've done this, where my attempt at comfort was, well, they're in a better place. Yes. But it doesn't completely, it doesn't take away the loss. Am I comforted by a believer who's gone on that that's where they are? Absolutely. But I still experience that loss. David is speaking not just about earthly loss. He's speaking about a comfort that comes in eternity. In eternity. This is David's case, literally. He understands that he will himself, because he's a child of God, he also has the power of an endless life where he is going to live forever. As the Apostle Paul wrote about in the book of Colossians and in Ephesians, where he talks about, and even, in, and even into Romans to some extent, he talks about the possession that we have in Christ, all the titles and everything as his children. In him, we are actually members of the body of Christ. We are actually living in him. There is actually real unity. There's real fellowship. There is a real living connection. One day, all of those who are in Christ will actually be completely and fully raised from sin in every form, they will be, all sorrow will be removed. Now right there, if I stop right there and I tell you, imagine having no sin and no sorrow. Everybody in their right mind signs up for that. (laughs) Everybody says, can you even imagine not having an ounce of sin and not experiencing sorrow ever again? Yet that's what's promised. But it is not just on its own. No sin, no sorrow, but we're actually going to be raised to perfect righteousness and perfect comfort. Now that's, that's pretty glorious stuff there. This, this, is, this is the promise of the hope when Paul, especially in Corinthians, writes about the hope of the resurrection. That's why it's, it's an absolute travesty that sometimes Christians and churches in particular don't talk about the resurrection until they get around a time in the spring. The resurrection is your source of hope. It is, it is the very thing that is the promise of what's coming. To be quickened, made alive, everlasting comfort, no sin, no sorrow. You'll be raised one day from the dust without corruption. And as Paul describes it, to glory and immortality. These thoughts are almost too high for us to even consider today. Verse 22, I will also praise thee with the psaltery, even thy truth, O my God. Unto thee will I sing with the harp, O thou holy one of Israel. David, as he spoke about these trials, he talks about his sorrows and troubles. 
He also says, I will praise you. I will sing. Do you realize God's always attentive to the cry of his people? God is listening. God is answering. When God hears our prayers, when God hears us and our supplications, it is God who gives us the faith that he will deliver us. In other words, when you have that moment after you've prayed and you've gone to the Lord and you begin to get this peace and this comfort about, I know deliverance is certain. I know the realities of the hope of the resurrection. Do you realize that's part of the gift of faith? That's the comforting words of God that's reminding you, remember the faith that I've given to you. Remember the faith. David is singing and praying as a man of faith. David understands the truth of God. Faith understands the truth of God. Faith understands God's promises. Faith understands God's faithfulness in being good to his promises. That is worthy of our highest praise. That God, whether I'm in distress, whether I'm going into distress or coming out of distress, whether I'm on the mountain or whether I'm in the valley, when I cry out, God, hear me and deliver me, you realize that for the child of God, there is always on the other side of the trial a deliverance either here earthly or eternally. When I step out into eternity, that is deliverance. That's deliverance in the perfect, most perfect way because now I have eternal comfort. I am no longer corrupted with sin. I am no longer sorrowful. I get questions throughout the years. People, people say, are, are people sad in heaven? No. Are they sad that they're not with us? No. Not in the sense that we like to think about it because they have seen and are experiencing something that our mind is not able to grasp yet. Right now, we're saying all these things in faith, knowing that they will be, but we have not seen the fulfillment of them with our own eyes yet. But one day we will. As a believer cries out in those words, O oh my God, thou art my praise, thou art my God, the deliverance of the Lord, God in his good will and pleasure towards us works for us. Now again, don't take what I just said, works for us, is that he's at our beck and call, must do everything we ask for. What I mean by that is, is that when we begin to pray and we begin to praise God, God is working for our good and his glory in all things. David was deeply affected by God's goodness to him. I don't know if we fully know how good God has been. I don't know if we fully grasp it but I think we should, we should make it a subject of our meditation. You know, maybe two on that this week. How, God, how good has God been to you? If the goodness of God is just dependent upon my outward circumstances, I may not find God very good at all. 
But if I find that God is even good, even in the bad circumstances and bad trials and struggles, I may have a better understanding of who God is. David says, I will praise thee with the psaltery, even thy truth. O my God, unto thee will I sing with the harp, O thou holy one of Israel. That holy one of Israel, that is a reserved special title. The Holy One of Israel is a title that if you read into the New Testament, you find that that particular title is a name that's given to Christ in the Scriptures. Thou Holy One of Israel. That's an identification with the Holy One of Israel is Jesus Christ Himself. He is the Holy One of Israel. As we're going to learn again in our study of Hebrews in just a bit, He is the true, perfect priest. He is the one that wears that holy crown that was mentioned even in the book of Exodus about what the crown of the high priest was to say. Holiness to the Lord. Jesus Christ is holy. Perfect holiness. He is most high. He is most holy. Then David says in verse 23, My lips shall greatly rejoice when I sing unto thee, and my soul which thou hast redeemed. Now I think of all the verses we've looked at this morning, this particular verse expresses what David's frame of mind really is. The spiritual sense of David's mind here, what his mind was focused on, what his affection was directed at, what he most was engaged to do was that his lips, his mouth, his heart, his tongue, his mind, his will would all go out towards God. Everything that I am is being directed towards the praise of God. He sings praises about his own personal deliverance from the temporal things and spiritual things. He's praising God for his deliverance from his enemies, from troubles, from trials, from misery. He takes great delight in expressing himself with joy, and he sings forth with praise. It's kind of illustrative here that... I don't think this says that the only way you can rightly praise the Lord is if you can, pay, if you can play the harp. Okay? It, it doesn't mean you've got to play the harp. The, the idea here is, is anything and everything David can use to praise God with, that's what he's doing. In song. Remember, these psalms were often sung. It's a practice that has disappeared from most churches, but it's something that we're going to try to bring back and try to incorporate. Actually singing psalms along with these great hymns that we already sing. Singing psalms about God's goodness and God's greatness. David says, I'll do this continually. He makes it very personal. I sing unto thee and my soul which thou hast redeemed. What an important statement. My soul which thou hast redeemed. My tongue also shall talk of thy righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought unto shame that seek my hurt. David, as he declares what his full employment or what his full affection will be towards, He will speak daily. He will speak clearly about the goodness of the Lord to him. 
And in that story, in that testimony, he would have to speak how God had been good and great to him in troubles as well as in triumphs. He would have to speak about how God, when he called upon him, God responded. I can't get over the fact that as a child of God, when I call unto the Lord, that he responds. Do you realize who you're talking to? And he responds to you. The fact he even listens to me is, is, is it, it baffles me. The only reason I know it to be so is because his word declares that he does. But he has to be speaking of not only how God had been good to him, but how faithful God had been to him. How God had fulfilled all of his truth, all of his promises to him. How God had quickened him. How God had answered his prayers and answered his request. How God had brought him back from the depths, had restored him. How one day, even God would restore him. David would go back to this kingdom. David would reassume this throne. But David, speaking even deeper than just the earthly throne, my tongue shall talk of thy righteousness all the day long, for they are confounded, for they are brought unto shame that seek my hurt. Now, did David mean every enemy, or did he just mean Absalom and Ahithophel? Well, I think from the context, probably he had Absalom and Ahithophel in mind, but he understands all the enemies will one day be confounded and will be brought to shame. Read through 2 Samuel, you'll find that all those enemies that were against David ultimately fell. Today, I think we just, we're brought to the place where we ask ourselves the question, is this our one subject, the perpetual praise of God? How do we do that? We do that in the strength of the Lord. We do it in a way that only God could give us the strength to do. So I hope that through this few week study of Psalm 71. I hope you've been helped. I hope it's been encouraging. I hope it has been something that has maybe even touched on something that has been very real in your life. If it hasn't helped you, it's helped me tremendously. It's helped me just to even get my mind back on how good God has been to me in spite of me. So God has certainly been good. Well, I do have just a couple of questions up there. Um, if anybody wants to take a 